0: Morena no mai kiti korero iranga itereo iranga ona tangata o Manawatu. It is the catch-up on Manawatu People's Radio. It is a Wednesday morning. It is Hump Day, and that means we turn our attention to the media and find out what they are reporting on. And in the studio, we have RNZ Regional Reporter uh, Jimmy Ellingham at yeah, Marie Good
1: morning, uh, Fraser, and it's. Probably no surprise what I've mostly been reporting on for the past
0: fortnight. <laughs> yes, uh, when COVID comes to town, the reporters go a-running. Yes, indeed. Uh, and, and invariably straight to the site of where the COVID uh, t- case was, was found. Which yes, is... in the past fortnight I've been to Stratford in yes. uh,
1: Taranaki, Woodville, Palmerston North, of course, to the cricket nets (laughs) where the COVID uh, case was found, as you've Familiar stomping ground for you. Yes, yes, indeed. Although perhaps not so much in the past few, uh, past couple of uh, years. Also, I had my first COVID test just over a week ago. uh, So that was quite an experience. I, I sort of thought that given I'd been to all these places, and in fact, I was at a testing. Uh, site doing a story, and they said, do you want one? And I thought, that might be wise,
0: (laughs) given where I've been. Just to be clear, you got the results? Yes, negative. Ah, there we go. Marvellous. So, well, let's start. um, I think Woodville was the first sort of place locally, wasn't it? So uh, what's been happening in Woodville? Yeah, we did have the truck driver here from
1: Auckland. uh, That was about probably a couple of months ago now who was in Palmerston North Hospital for a
0: while, so relatively sick. But and he was a good example because he was relatively well self-contained. He'd done all the right things. Um, poor bloke, though. I mean, to be stuck in a, basically a residence in Palmerston North Hospital for a fortnight with none of your own possessions or anything must have been awful. Yeah, couldn't have been nice. Uh,
1: couldn't, And I think there's every suggestion that the Woodville people... Uh, did the right thing mm. too. There, there was a couple of cases there announced at the start of last week, wasn't it? And that was the first community spread we'd seen of Delta in the mid-central region. Uh, there, there'd been some wastewater results, I think, in the days beforehand. So, yeah, last week I went to Woodville on the Monday, which was the day after uh, they'd been announced, and the testing was really ramping up there. It was quite a, uh, quite a, quite a queue at the testing mm. site in town. And at that site, by sort of Monday early afternoon last week, they'd done several hundred people, which actually equated to about of a quarter of the town. Yes, so that, that's a huge, a huge effort out there. One of the locations of interest in Woodville was the Caltex uh, there, the, the main petrol station on the on the main highway between Manawatu and Hawkes Bay, so well,
0: arguably the community hub. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: indeed. So that, that was a potential for a lot of people to have gone through there as well. In fact, uh, I did too, but not at the at the time that and, it was of interest.
0: And to be clear, that, did they set up a testing station in Woodville? Yes, yep, yes, yes. Uh, it was at the Woodville Health Centre. Because it was there. there not a case in Paietua recently and people had to come to Palmerston North for a test? Or uh,
1: Paietua not? does have testing sites too. There was wastewater, right. waste it was found. Uh, They're not open every day in some of these towns, and I think that's the case in Woodville too, but definitely once that was announced Mm. on the Sunday last week that there were those two cases there, that testing site did open in Woodville, and even on the Monday when myself and the rest of the reporters (laughs) got there a a day later, Mm. uh, it was still doing a a roaring trade, as it were.
0: And how is the the testing in Palmy? Because obviously we've got cases in the city now. Yes, last week we had
1: our first case in Palmerston North and uh, Monday, wasn't it? There was uh, close contact was uh, confirmed, so we've got two here in Palmerston North.
0: Ministry of Health uh, somewhat uh, slow on the uptake and and the DHB slow on the uptake. It seemed to be that the public health messages were coming from Manawatu Cricket Club. Last Thursday, that's how
1: everybody (laughs) woke up to the news, didn't it? That the Manawatu Cricket Association and the United Cricket Club where this, this man plays cricket for, who was the first contact, mm. uh, they put out public health messaging and uh, acted very swiftly,
0: actually. And responsibly. And well responsibly, done.
1: responsibly, yes. And, and they were very, uh, very happy to talk to us. And I see they talked to the Manawatu Standard, too, just to make sure everyone was, uh, as they say, put the facts out there. So the man was a contact, a casual contact of one of these Woodville cases. And on... The day after the Woodville was announced, so Monday last week, he had a test which came back negative. Mm -hmm. The next night went to cricket practice with his United Club uh, teammates. As you would. As as you would, because you're negative and you're not symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as it turns out, I think as far as the United Cricket Club knew, all the people at practice were fully vaccinated, which may have made a difference because they've all come back negative Mm -hmm. uh, as having no COVID after a period of isolation for some of them. And then the day after, the evening after this man felt uh, symptomatic, it wasn't anything great, apparently. He just had symptoms similar to a cold. Yep. So no, And he was fully vaccinated, so no, no huge symptoms there. But did the right thing, got a des- test, it came back positive. Good on him. He let the cricket people know. And I went down on the Thursday to the site, <laughs> if you will, um, of the cricket nets. And they were undergoing a deep uh, clean on Thursday. So they will reopen the next day. But as you said, the public health messaging initially was coming from the cricket Association and the United Cricket Club. It wasn't until the 1pm update that we had confirmation from the Ministry of Health that that's the case. And that's been the case the right the way through here. If you ask a question about a case that happens in the morning or something, you get told... Ashley's
0: got to say it first, at, then At 1 speak.
1: o'clock, there'll be confirmation of that. I mean, by that time, by 1 o'clock, I think the testing in Palmerston North at the drive-in site on Main Street was actually slowing down. Mm. I went and had a look quite early in the morning, and it was really, there were dozens of cars there... Yeah. Uh, by the afternoon, it had slowed uh, considerably. And, and there were there were a number of sort of casual contacts around the city, a few teachers at various schools, yeah. um, some Defence Force personnel who were isolating just until they had
0: those negative results. Is it good enough for Mid- Mid-Central to, in essence, ignore the case until 1 p.m.? You know, we all know it's there. Surely you can give us some guidance. Especially as you you, you would have liked some confirmation
1: that what, There's no reason to think the Cricket Association weren't on the money. Mm. They wouldn't have done it otherwise. But it would be nice to get some official confirmation from health authorities, wouldn't it? Mm. The the chairwoman of the Manitou Cricket Association is former coroner Carla Nanakorn, who until recently headed the Suicide Prevention Office in Wellington. So she, I think, and James Lovegrove, the Cricket Association head, they're they're pretty savvy. I think they knew that they had to get it out there. Yeah. Because quite a few people potentially affected. Because oh, as well yeah. as this man's club teammates, some of his club teammates the next night went to pr- practice with the rep cricket squad. <laughs> right. So and you can see how these things could spread potentially. Oh yeah. All of them. All the rep squad was uh, fully vaccinated too. So as it turned out, it hasn't spread. Uh, but but you, you don't know that at that point.
0: Manawatu cricket and contact tracing.
1: Mm, uh, they, they did uh, <laughs> they did very well. And like I said, they were on the ball. I I got into work last Thursday sort of somewhere between 8.30 and 9 and Kala the chairwoman of Manawatu Cricket, I'd spoken to her within minutes. And the same with the United Cricket Club. Pretty, pretty soon after that too. So it was their, their messaging, their public health messaging was spot on.
0: rnz.co.nz, uh, you can find all of Jimmy's stories uh, as written articles sometimes with audio components and sometimes with video. Uh, and Pongaroa, uh, you went to visit Pongaroa. Um, the pub had vaccinations and testings and all sorts of things going on.
1: It, it was last Friday night. It was a very nice uh, evening actually I have to say. And this is uh, we, we might have just criticised midcent for a little bit in that last uh, yes. story but this is one thing that I think they're doing very well. Mid-Central District Health Board going on the road uh, in conjunction with local iwi as well. So communities, that they have workers who just see which communities need it. And Pangaroa, for people who might not know, is about 90 minutes' drive southeast of Palmerston North. Mm-hmm. It's northern Wadalapa, town of a, maybe 100 or 200, a few hundred in the wider area. It's not super easy to get there. And even from Woodville and Pahiatua, it's a bit of a... A drive. Yep. It's not an easy road to get to. It's a, it's a lovely drive, though, well worth, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, well worth going out there. But on Friday evening at the Pangaroa Hotel, they had a, a vaccination clinic. So people were turning up uh, to get their vaccination then potentially having a, a drink or, or whatever. And registered nurse Melissa Nikora, uh, she, she was out there leading the response from uh, mid-central. And, uh, and, and she can explain, in fact, uh, how people can get a jab and, and a pint. We are here at Pongoro Pub, so um, they do say, "Can we drink?" So we always encourage to wait after the fifteen minutes first. So we encourage them to drink water that we are supplied, um, and then after that,
0: they're free to do whatever they like. Get your priorities in order. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, and, and several people did that that I spoke to out there. A lot of other people in the bar, actually, everyone I spoke to, said they were fully. Uh, vaccinated or were there getting their vaccination. Mm-hmm. Nobody said they wouldn't have got a, a shot, but they all sort of said, mm, we might not have got one by now or yep. we appreciate uh, the health authorities coming to us. And that's what health authorities should be doing. They should yes. be coming to people to make this an easy process. So where are they going next then? <laughs> well, yeah, that, we don't know if they're going to Pongoro again. This was the second time they were there. And uh, most of the jabs they had on Friday, they gave about 51. Many of them, I think most of them, vast majority were a second shot, so there might not be a need to go out there again. Mm. They also went to a forestry site on Friday in um, Tararua and made a couple of home visits for people who wow. weren't very mobile. So that certainly was a long day for them, but a day well spent. And the vaccination rate in Tararua at that point was somewhere, for first shots, was somewhere in the order of 86%, mm. which was behind Mid-Central as a whole, which was 90%. Palmerston North, I think, was 94, yep. isn't it? So you can just see how those rural uh, places are a
0: little bit behind. Are they gonna have to roll, they're going to have to roll this out for the booster shots, though, in six months, aren't they? Or do you think it's more likely people will travel into the Big Smoke to get to get their booster shots?
1: I, I'd say surely that this has been relatively successful. Why not do it? Mm. Do it again. I don't know if they've made that decision uh, yet. Uh, there was a Pangaroa local who I spoke to called Doris Petty. Uh, she actually works at a health... Uh, or, Health organisation and Ngatane Health organisation in Dennyberg, and it was the idea of her and some colleagues to get that uh, clinic out to Pongoroa on Friday evening. And uh, the pub manager there, she said, that, you know, someone phoned up and she thought, what a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> um, and she was having a busy a roaring trade on Friday. It was probably the normal Friday evening anyway, but Mm. uh, to get 50 people coming through your pub, so you had the pub at the front, a room out the back and (laughs) after their 15 minutes uh, people came in.
0: I I don't wish to suggest that the hotel is in any way unsanitary, but you're used to getting these uh, jabs and inoculations in a uh, clean sanitary doctor's surgery, not in the back room of a pub. But When you want to get uh, 90
1: to 95 or 100%, as close as you can get coverage, you go wherever you will Mm. and Mm-hmm. We see those uh, temporary clinics or sites in the plaza, for example. Yeah. And uh, so this is no different. Health, um, Melissa Nicora, the nurse you heard from before, she did say that, uh, that they do check out a site before they go there. It's not yeah. just simply a matter of turning up and thinking, oh, what do we have
0: here? It is, they have a look to see if it's suitable. And I'm assuming they wait to have a little libation at the end of the <laughs> clinic, not in the, during it.
1: Well, they might not have had time because after the clinic, that's when they're going to make their home Ah, of course, visits. Right. And so yeah. the clinic was four to seven p.m. on a Friday. A couple of home visits. You then got quite a long drive mm-hmm. uh, back to Palmerston North, and uh, yeah, I, I left uh, shortly before seven, and yeah, didn't get back here till about eight thirty. So it is a long day, especially for those guys. I've been on the. On the road all day.
0: Yeah, uh, there we go. Some COVID nineteen updates and news, uh, of course, ahead of uh, the country moving to the traffic light system—the uh, completely understandable, simple, and elegant traffic light system. Note the sarcasm in my voice, uh, which I believe is coming into effect on the third of December. But we're all moving to red uh, in the first instance, uh, and hopefully, hopefully, some places—I would have thought some places in the South Island, in particular, might see orange or even green by uh, Christmas. You would hope so wouldn't you
1: for mm. for their sake and I'm sure uh, they're hoping so too. And for Auckland it's nice isn't it to think the people uh, there have some end in sight to, what's the lockdown now, three more than three months. Uh,
0: my, I, my heart goes out to uh, Auckland because the, the thought, of, I mean we did lockdown in 2020 for what, seven or eight weeks?
1: Yeah but it was only four or five weeks of actual hard lockdown wasn't yes. it then it started easing and this August what was it 2 weeks mm-hmm. i think which didn't really And fail. we were
0: and well we were over it at that point with 2 weeks but i mean that was slightly different when we didn't have the sort of the timeline or the the idea of how long it was going to last so to have that for three months plus, oh, God, it's a miracle anyone's sane over there. Um, but they're all getting their hair cut now. So <laughs> yes, that, that's right. Um, let's move on from the pandemic. Uh, I remember talking to you in your previous role about Thai Happy School, Thai Happy um,
1: area, sc- area School. That's yes, the one. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: where this is uh, a situation where some land that the school owned. Had been land banked by the Ministry of Education, who thought they owned it, Um, and this was a mistake. And stunningly, it's irreversible. And I just, I I still cannot wrap my head around that. You can't write to the land bank people and go, "Look, obviously we can't. We we have stolen land. And you see where I'm going here. And give and given it to you by mistake. Could we give it back, please? You can't do it."
1: No, is the short answer. You, I, you can't do that. It me. So I know I've recapped this saga before, but about 30 years ago, uh, Thai Happy College, as it was then, bought some land quite cheaply off a local farmer to use for agricultural studies. Mm-hmm. And no one really knows how it happened, but some 25 years or so later, despite the school still using this land and being very clear that it uses the land, also being very clear that it owns the land, not the Ministry of Education. Mm-hmm. The complicating factor is Happy College doesn't exist now. It's merged with the primary school to become Happy Area School. But still, the school owns, yes. the, owns the land, you would think. But no, somehow the Ministry of Education uh, hocked it off to <laughs> the land bank. Still not exactly sure how, apart from – I mean, the Ministry of Education has apologised after the ombudsman investigated. But actually how it happened is still a bit of a mystery to me, I mm-hmm. have to to admit – officials were confused about whether it was used or not. If you'd asked the school, they would have said yes, and I would have thought the confusion would have ended yes uh, at that point. But anyway, it's gone to the land bank. The school is actually, we should say, still using the land, even if the local iwi claims that it says you know the school can keep using it till 20-something 20, 20 at least, and yeah, yeah. who knows beyond that. But the point is the school no longer owns it. It was an asset. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and now it's not. And you're sort of relying on the generosity of others, which – as opposed to owning something. Yeah. So the ministry apologised, but the school, after initially considering what to do, has come out and said, well, actually, we don't accept your apology. Here is a middle finger. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> essentially. And what we want to see is we want Ministry of Education to buy us some land for our farming yes. studies or give some money so we can do it. But some sort of solution like that, we need a bit more than an apology,
0: uh, I mean, was it in the school's balance sheet as an asset? I mean, because obviously it's a separate financial practice to what the MOE are involved in. How did the crossover happen? I presume that the Ministry of Education just wasn't used to schools
1: owning their own assets like that Mm. because generally they don't, do they? Schools are on land owned by the Crown, the Ministry of Education, so it's possibly never something that's cropped up before. But aside from that, the fact the school used it, even if it didn't, Say if it was part of the Ministry of Education-owned land, Mm -hmm. the fact the school's still using it means surely there's a need for it. So
0: the MoE didn't even go to the school and say, "Are you using this land before we decide that we don't want to pay for it?" Part the school says we made it clear
1: that we were using this, Mm. so that's why I'm saying I'm just not quite sure how on earth this happened, Uh, and no one's really given a, a, a cogent. Answer about that. Yeah, there was the merger happened. I think under the Labor government of Helen Clark. So it's quite some time ago, and some of the people have moved on. Mm. I, I wasn't Thai happy oh, a few weeks ago. Now, a couple of weeks ago, to, to do this story, you mentioned I did. I used to do these stories for the Manawatu Standard. Mm. Phil Pennington was writing them for RNZ, so we work together on this one <laughs> now. And uh, yes, yeah, so I was there talking to a few people, and everyone still just remains aghast.
0: Yeah, um, and this could could happen. So they've they've written to MOE saying, pay for some more land or, or give us the money and we'll do it. Uh, I'm assuming no response yet. No, not that we know of yet. Uh, they've said we don't accept your apology. Here's what we want to happen. Mm-hmm. Marvellous, in the least marvellous sense. Um, yes, in, a, in a sarcastic marvellous <laughs>
1: sense, but we'll, we'll keep a look at that uh, story. I'm sure there's more, uh, more to go there, because like you say, there will be the Ministry of Education response to that, mm-hmm. and then what does the school do there?
0: Uh, and 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 as you've said, I mean you've 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 been in touch with or heard from uh, local iwi there who have said they they, they recognise the situation, so they're not going to kick the, the school out straight away.
1: No one's blaming the iwi yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, And it would be unfortunate if anyone did because it's it's not the iwi's fault. No, no, not in the slightest. <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. I mean, so there's no issue with the school using the land for now. But the school's point is, well, we want to. Yeah, you know, we want to guarantee long term, which of course they can't. Mm. They can't realistically get or expect. And you know, the land was the school, so we have to keep going back to that point. I think every time I've spoken about this story I just cannot get my head around <laughs> Uh, how it was allowed to happen Mm. Uh,
0: We are here with Jimmy Ellingham, RNZ regional reporter, on the catch up looking at what he has been reporting on in the past couple of weeks. Uh, This is a a, a select amount of stories, there's plenty more that you can find on rnz.co.nz both written word and audio and in some cases video Um, Let's briefly look at the mental health ward at Palmerston North Hospital. I mean, there's a wider unpacking of issues with regards to the the disestablishment of the DHB and the, the the grossly undersized hospital as a whole really now. I mean, the, the, the population has grown around this hospital and it hasn't really got much real estate to play with beyond that. Um, but the mental health ward in particular uh, looked like it was going to basically get an overhaul. In a, a, there is a new one going yeah. to
1: be built next year and that's still going to happen. But of course, you can build a new place and there is recognition that the, the physical building isn't suitable at the moment but you also need to ensure other things Mm. are going smoothly around that and we had a a few weeks or two or three weeks ago now there was a suspected suicide of a patient at the mental health ward there which is very similar to stories I've spoken to you about in the past we've got coroner's inquests coming up next year for two patients who uh, died in suspected suicides on the ward in 2014. Right. We had, we've had we had coronial inquests waiting for the result of one into two patients who died when they were on leave from the ward. And on leave doesn't mean you're going away for a few weeks. On leave is simply a pass to get out. It might be to go across the road to buy smokes. Right. That sort of thing. Okay. And uh, So
0: arguably leaving with only one thing in
1: mind. Yeah, potentially. Mm. And also we had a case in June where, where a man... Uh, died in a suspected suicide. He he wasn't actually in the mental health ward, but he had presented to the hospital with with mental health symptoms. So th- th- there's a there's an issue here, isn't it? And, it's, uh, there, and there the
0: consequences a, are grave. The, yeah, well they are. And 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 is the issue the facility itself? Is it the standard of care? Is it, and, and I hesitate to say this, and I say it out of pure ignorance, is this something that you would expect to be happening in a mental health ward where people with very serious mental health issues are uh, confronting those? Well, yeah, <laughs> something you would expect it to happen sometimes, surely, but mm. it
1: surely should not happen on the ward or, or in the hospital grounds. And, and if something were to happen, it should be remedied pretty quickly, and yep. that's been the situation of some of these uh, for example, one of the, uh, the sort of suspected suicide—we haven't had a coroner's ruling on this—but there was an inquest into it this year, uh, where a man seems to have taken his own life in hospital grounds, and you know his body wasn't found for, for days. That, that sort of thing, when when it was really just metres from the front door, yeah, um, of the of the mental health ward. So, so there's issues like that. Yes, the building has been recognised as uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister, went there, I think, two years ago, and said it's not. The sort of place that feels like a prison. It's not the sort of place you'd want to go to, mm-hmm. where you needs you know when you're at a low point where you need some
0: healing. Yeah. So so that's been arguably recognized. it should be the nicest place of the entire hospital alongside the maternity ward. Yeah, my yeah. my theory with hospitals in every other instance is leave your dignity at the door. You're there to get better and then get the hell out again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that these incidents are still happening, uh, a family member of one of the 2014 deaths, who was Sean Gray, who died in suspected suicide on the ward. His brother Ricky sort of said hearing of these latest uh, latest incidents just makes him think, goodness, all the things that we were told that were put in place post-2014, mm-hmm. 15, 16, are they actually working or not? And one of those was to have a clinical head of the Mental Health and Acute Services team, uh, but the, the previous ones left to take up a new position as a, I think it's Deputy Human Rights Commissioner or something okay. along those lines, hasn't been replaced straight away been that that's her responsibilities have gone with someone who has other responsibilities and midcentral a couple of weeks ago told me that they were they were looking at the leadership structure of that team but you know in the meantime they're looking at they're, a restructure or, no at the leadership structure so well, yeah, yeah potentially
0: but, but i mean they've only got a few months to go but until you've got to keep
1: assuming, don't you? You're you're operating uh, as as normal, yeah, as it were, as possible. But the point Ricky Gray was making is that well, goodness, having a clinical head was one of the recommendations to come out of one of the investigations from years ago, and yeah. na- and now there's not one in place. And you know, he-, he said, do we need a review of all the reviews to make sure <laughs> everything is happening as it should?
0: <laughs> yes. Oh God. Um, we've got about five minutes left. We spent quite a bit of time. I think the last time you were on the catch up, uh, looking at the Lake Alice um, story, uh, the inquiry into uh, abuse in care, um, and we, we we drilled down in a bit of detail. But you've been speaking to some more people um, because, of course, this is the story doesn't stop at Lake Alice. This is a national story, uh, quite a confronting one, um, one that no one can really feel. proud of the state of healthcare in this country over the previous few decades. Um, and, and you're sort of drilling into that a bit, really. Yeah, the Lake Ellis was a uh, Rangatiki institution,
1: uh, shut more than 20 years ago now. But uh, in particular, uh, there was a Royal Commission held this year, well, it's, it's an ongoing one, into abuse in state care, but it looked at the Lake Ellis Child and Adolescent Unit in the 1970s. And the evidence that was heard was pretty... Pretty terrifying, really, of the abuse, sexual and physical that went on there, including the likes of handing out uh, electro, electronic therapy, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, mm. or ECT, as it was known for sure, And short. we
0: talked about uh, Dr. Leakes. Dr. We- Selwyn Leakes, yes. Yeah. He was the
1: lead psychiatrist there, and many of the people giving evidence that the Royal Commission said at his hands, mm. or at his instigation, was the punishment uh, given out to them. For for minor infractions, these people were quite young, in many cases, and they'd and potentially troubled as well. Oh yeah, yeah. There's so many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of them weren't though. Some exactly. Of them, some of them were sent there. For example, well, I've interviewed one survivor. He was sent there because he was diagnosed with bipolar. He didn't have any trouble really in his life until then, but has had it since because yeah. he suffers memory loss, which he puts down to that electric shock uh, therapy. But some twenty, more than twenty years ago, now a few hundred claimants got came forward in a class action to take legal action mm. to get some redress for what happened. Uh, to them. And in the end, those 200 or so people shared between them $13 million or thereabouts, uh, which was came in the form of an ex-gratia, you know, we, we take no responsibility, but here's some money sort of payment. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there was a question asked at the Royal Commission by the Lawyer for Survivors, Francis Joychild QC. She asked the Solicitor General uh, Una Jargos if it was true that... In Treasury documents in the late 90s, actually $132 million was identified as what they call a contingent liability, so possibly what we might have to pay out. And, you know, if that's the case, why make these people fight so hard to give them a tenth of that? Uh, Jargos said she didn't know. She'd have to go away and check. Um, But I checked with Crown Law a couple of weeks ago, and they confirmed that, yes, in a budget document from 1999 – there, there was this amount uh, put aside. One of the survivors is Paul Zentfeld, and he's taken, he's taken the government to the UN. In fact, the Royal Commission to Lake Alice really came about uh, as a result of uh, his work. As he points out, there's been no compensation or help uh, for, for survivors such as him.
0: They can play all the duty tricks they like, but we want to get paid money, big money, because we deserve it. And torture is torture. They have to pay for everything ordered by the UN. Torture is torture. They signed up for it in 1947.
1: Kind of inarguable, really. Yeah, and he's talking there about the UN Convention Against uh, Torture, and that's on the basis of which that he took his claim to the UN. Uh, he has suggestions uh, that a, a system such as he calls a silver card could work, and that would give Lake Ellis survivors, and presumably other survivors from other institutions access to counselling, uh, physical help if they needed it, that sort of thing, and they don't have to pay for it. That's the mm. government paying. Uh, the government up, credit card picking up the tab. Yeah, and, and Francis Joychild QC, who who asked that question uh, when when you know when she learned of this compensation, she just thought it was appalling mm. the way that the survivors were made to you know crawl through hoops to get a pittance compared with what was potentially identified. And as she pointed out too. They got some money, but there was no advice about how to handle that. There was no checks, do you need counselling, that sort of thing. Paul Zentfield, who you heard from there, said he's never had trauma counselling. And police, who he's spoken to recently as part of their latest investigation, uh, couldn't believe that given what had happened to him and others like him
0: good grief well uh, that and some of the other stories that we have uh, talked about today all ongoing all uh, have uh, Jimmy's eagle eye on them so there'll be developments on rnz.co.nz and of course we'll find out in the catch up as well Uh, Jimmy thank you for joining us this morning thank you Fraser and remember if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch up series just head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch up we're also on Apple Podcasts Spotify wherever you get your online listening accessmedia.nz as well back tomorrow with another edition of the catch-up at half past eight speaking to alicia rutherford from the palmerston north city council join us then bye for now if you're a fan of npr listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the kiwi fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favorite show.